Welcome to the European VC, your go-to place for insights into the European VC industry. Broadcasting from Portugal, I'm David Cruz Silva. And from Denmark, I'm Andreas Norman. Together, we are your hosts for today's episode. If you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us at LinkedIn or at theeuropeanvc.com. If you're about to raise an international round, let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant VCs. Today, we are joined by Mark Lorman, managing partner of Visalia's Biocapital Fund 3, a 120 million euro life sciences VC fund investing in late stage companies, drug development, medtech, diagnostics, and e health, predominantly in Europe. Visalia's portfolios includes the likes of Dear Health, a Dutch American healthcare spin up from the University of California in Los Angeles, who develops AI powered personalized care pathways for chronic care. For Rendo Pharma, a clinical stage drug development company focused on novel therapeutic solutions for women's health, and Sword Health, a digital musculoskeletal therapy provider, which has drawn investments from other great VC funds like Cosla Ventures and Founders Fund. Prior to joining Visalius, Mark has started no less than eight life sciences companies, such as Reverse Medical, which was acquired by Govidian in 2014. Mark has also been an investment manager at Bio Innovation and worked with several corporate finance boutiques focused on life sciences M&A transactions. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, David, uh, Andreas, more than happy to be here. And it's great that you're, you're taking the initiative to set up a platform like that. And I'm more than happy to contribute as a first guest. The pleasure uh, is really all ours. Um, and uh, before jumping into the fray, I'd like for our listeners to have a chance to get to know you. And I know that you haven't always been about entrepreneurship and venture capital, but you actually tried your hand at uh, professional tennis. Would you, would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, happy to do so. Um, I think I spent most of my time as a, as a kid and as a young adult on the tennis court and tried to compete in international tournaments, uh, made it up to a 900 in the world, which uh, uh, seemed to be uh, okay and competitive, but when playing uh, the really big guys, I, I was hammered down. So uh, I think it was a good experience to also uh, create and uh, create a person that I'm today. Um, but with that, I'm, I'm originating out of an entrepreneurial family. Both my parents ran their own companies. And why? when I finished my diploma thesis, which is uh, solely an MBA, so no natural sciences background, back in 1999, um, most of my um, friends uh, started internet uh, companies and moved to Berlin. I was not interested in one or the other, but then more by chance started a biotech company and ran that for uh, almost four years as a chief business officer taking care of financials, which was okay. But my big love by the time was corporate development, uh, signing deals with uh, Bayer, Lilly, uh, GSK, and Matterex. And I, I continued with that. And, um, and in the last 21 years, I set up a total of uh, eight companies. Uh, two are still in the running. One has been sold uh, to Covidian Medtronic. A couple of them went bankrupt. And over uh, different uh, positions in the industry, I was promoted to managing partner of the Food Fund of Azaleas. And uh, that is uh, what, we, what brought me to the interview today. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is quite a background, uh, Mark, and, and very interesting to hear how you, uh, you, you took the journey that, that many VCs have taken uh, from, from starting, starting uh, companies themselves, being entrepreneurs themselves, and then into the venture capital uh, uh, industry. But... 
I, I'm very interested in hearing how do you think that uh, this journey affects your, your, your way of managing and running Vesalius Biocapital Fund 3? Well, um, I think when the, when the offer arrived uh, of Vesalius to, uh, to join the partnership of the third fund, and I only was a venture, uh, a venture partner for the first two funds, I, I was a bit skeptical in the beginnings. I was thinking, well, is it really a good idea to change sides of the table, become a, a, a VC investor and really change to the dark side of the table? Uh, and then I read a couple of books and discussed with my wife. And uh, she said, well, uh, as an entrepreneur, you were complaining for uh, 15, 16 years, uh, as long as I know you, um, uh, about uh, VCs. And right now, why don't you do it better? Um, and uh, so, so she encouraged me to take that position. And I think uh, being in that position for uh, three years and a bit, I found it very, very interesting to work with the entrepreneurs and support them. And I think I bring a bit of a different flavor because of my previous experience as an entrepreneur, which had a, a lot of lows, I have to admit, but also a couple of highs. And uh, with that, I probably bring a bit of a different perspective in the boardroom. Um, seeing a probably a new generation arriving at the VCs today, I see more uh, previous entrepreneurs uh, entering the scene uh, rather than uh, people stepping in from the big pharma industry. And I think that is uh, a, a development that has taken place in the US uh, a longer time ago, and uh, which is something I'm seeing in Europe just emerging. And I'm pretty sure that this will provide a, a fresh wind into the industry. Yeah, Mark. That's um, when when you talk about uh, a fresh approach to VCs, uh, to VC, there's actually something that um, I believe stands out, um, and that's the fact. Uh, for, and Vesalius, that's the fact that you guys are investing across Europe. Um, in, in my experience, often what we see is that VCs are focusing on their own country and and seldomly go across the border and and invest in neighboring countries or projects from neighboring countries, and. Um, this, this, this seems to make sense operationally, but um, I, I argue that it may limit uh, deal flow or ac even access to, to co-investment partners. So I, I would love for you to elaborate a bit on why Vesalis is country agnostic uh, and also what are the implications of that decision? Yeah. So uh, as most of the other uh, VCs, and that is true for not only life sciences, but for tech and sustainability and, and what you have out there, I think uh, there is a comparably a lot of uh, money in the VC market, so meaning limited partners money, that has a geographical earmark. So that means that an investor is putting money into our fund uh, with either hard strings attached or a uh, gentleman agreement that uh, a certain amount of that money is reinvested into a certain country, which is skewing... Uh, your interest in certain countries and in others, not uh, a bit in the market, you know. And that is something I think you have to deal with in, in Europe. Uh, when you explain that to a US VC, uh, for example, they don't really understand. It takes them a, a bit to understand why we force a company into a certain European country rather than uh, that, that it remains in a certain country where they have, to, where they have started. And with that, I think we... We became a country agnostic. I think we are uh, uh, having deal flow from most of the European countries these days. And if you would draw a, a GDP chart, uh, you would see that the strongest countries are also providing most of the deals. I think uh, Germany is standing out uh, here. Also, 
because of the fact that we are having a, a Munich office here where Christian and myself are working. We're having a lot of deals from Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, a bit uh, less from Luxembourg because of our domicile in Brussels and the fact that our funds are, um, are located in Luxembourg. Um, being country agnostic has a lot of upsides. I think uh, you are seeing a lot of good signs in, let's say, the traditional markets like uh, France and even the Nordics, uh, Germany. Uh, but you also have some, some interesting plays from uh, more the eastern part of, of Europe. And uh, in that third fund, we have the pleasure to also invest in beautiful Portugal. And we have done uh, two deals there. Um, and we're seeing a lot of interesting deals in digital health coming from there, but also in therapeutics. Um, so I think uh, it is absolutely a positive to be country agnostic. Um, the operat operational limitations are, and uh, you, you mentioned that, is a, probably a bit syndication. Uh, for example, not a lot of people are experienced or have money to invest in Portugal. So building syndicates initially uh, is a bit more difficult than in other countries, for example, like Germany, where you have a lot of governmental uh, VCs or other institutional players that have uh, money to invest in, in Germany or even in Bavaria. You know? So that makes, for example, Portuguese uh, syndication a bit uh, difficult. Having Portugal Ventures as the usual suspect in all the deal simplifies that a bit. But I think the, the case uh, with uh, Swart Health, uh, where we have invested with a family office uh, together, and then the next round was led by Kosler Ventures from the West Coast, and then it was uh, taken up by Founders Fund, and then the two US VCs made the company move headquarters to New York. That is a uh, very nice case where a, let's say, an, a local investment uh, strategy is leading to a, a, the setup of a global company. And now, Mark, uh, because this is very interesting uh, and, and something that us uh, uh, starting the European VC is, uh, is, is very interested in. Um, so, so I'd love to hear more from you on, on how do you specifically go about developing these opportunities that are coming from all across Europe when you are uh, physically based where you are? Yeah, so, so uh, first of all, uh, and I, I think that is true for most of the European VCs in life sciences and likely tech where I have uh, limited knowledge, um, we are seeing a lot of very good deals, uh, scientific, uh, uh, managerial uh, management uh, of these deals. And we are seeing something between four and 500 deals a year, which is quite a lot. Um, and I think uh, you have to quickly sift uh, through that deal flow and identify uh, attractive deals. Uh, asking me, uh, how, how do you do that? I think uh, you have a kind of a matrix and that is uh, consisting of historical investors or uh, investors that are interested in the upcoming round how appealing is the science are you going for a comparably small market for a big market what about competition uh, what about ip what about management team and all that stuff and that is uh, more or less independent of the country you you're you're working in i think you for example in in germany you have a lot of good pharma executives whereas in in portugal uh, you have a lot of uh, driven young entrepreneurs that are extremely hungry to push their, 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 their projects and their companies forward. And probably they are sometimes even a bit stubborn, uh, I have to admit. Mm -hmm. um, 
But okay, so I think that is, so So we are re really rarely investing in existing business plans. So once we are seeing a business plan, we are providing our two cents and expect the company to come back in one, two, three weeks time and having digest that two cents and really think and really come up with saying either, well, uh, what, you, what you told us is bullshit and uh, we have to do it this way because of ABC or most of the times they are taking our ideas and try to really bring them in into into their business plans, and I think that um, that approach of really working with management teams a couple of weeks or even months or quarters even uh, to come up with a business plan which at least has a bit of a of a footprint of us, it is something that makes on one hand a lot of sense because it hopefully increases the likelihood that uh, of a good return to our investors, but also makes a lot of sense towards the products that. Uh, the companies are developing uh, to improve uh, patient care. And I think that is very important. We are uh, super selective when it comes uh, to what we are investing in. And the first threshold is whether it is addressing an unmet medical and market need. So we are not going for any generics. We are not going for Me Too products. Um, we are not going for uh, care facilities or, or services which have no or limited impact on how patients are treated. And uh, probably coming back to my initial statement, as we are investing in therapeutics, diagnostics, med tech, and digital health, um, you may say, well, how is a diagnostic impacting uh, the therapeutic intervention? It could, but most of the time, the therapeutic consequence out of a diagnostic is not really thought uh, uh, through in a, in a very let's say, detailed way. And that is what we are bringing into, in, into such game and, and exchange, saying, okay, so it's a nice diagnostic approach, great, but please show us how it, this is really differentiating the way patients are treated and what is the outcome for the patient. And I think that is the, the first threshold uh, that a company has to jump over. That's very interesting, Mark. And also, and also what, I, what, what I want to hear more about is how when you when you get over the first threshold and uh, and start working with them you haven't invested yet uh, but these uh, first or two first quarters where you're working together um, trying to 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 uh, determine whether you are a good fit um, and whether they they agree with you on your views and, and vice versa um, how do you go about how how does it affect you that you are investing across all of Europe instead of As I see here in Denmark, uh, we are uh, very physically, we spend a lot of time physically with uh, uh, the, uh, the founders in this period. Uh, but I guess that is, uh, that is uh, quite a bit more uh, difficult when you're investing in, uh, in companies uh, far, far away. Yeah, uh, you, you may be right, yes. Um, I think um, with, with uh, uh, dealing with management teams from Portugal uh, up to to uh, Turku um, in, in Finland, I think uh, you can't travel all the time to the management team and, and provide your two cents face-to-face. -face. Uh, that is why we have switched to uh, Zoom uh, meetings probably 18 months ago. And with the lockdown, this even increased. Um, and I think uh, we are becoming more and more effective when it, when it comes to these meetings and supplying companies, being it actual portfolio companies or uh, new projects that we are taking a look at. With, with our thoughts on how to improve their, their business plan. So, so geography in Europe is not playing a major role. Although I have to admit, uh, in, we try to do a one investment in every fund outside of Europe. And I was just working on a deal in Boston 
which unfortunately uh, we had to uh, move to the sideline because of uh, uh, problems to syndicate it, although it's an amazing technology uh, in terranostics for uh, cancer patients. Um, I think that is becoming a bit more difficult going uh, over the Atlantic and, and work with the US teams with the lockdown and all that stuff. And that is why we are concentrating on, on Europe. I mean, I'm doing uh, two deals actually more by chance in, in Germany and uh, within Germany traveling is, is easy. Whereas if I want to go to France these days, it's a bit of a, of a planning hassle uh, <laughs> that you are going through. But, you know, uh, overall, I think our, our input is uh, hopefully uh, taken as a, as a positive and listening to management teams we are working with. At least they claim uh, that, that we brought some, some positive things in. On the other hand, uh, would, they, would they tell us if, if we would have talked uh, and sp spoke only nonsense, but that they took our money? Likely not. So, um, so well... Uh, yeah, so hopefully that, that uh, addresses your question. It certainly does. It certainly does. And it's very interesting to hear how uh, you how you actually before COVID-19 already shifted to doing the uh, the the uh, the same things that everyone else has shifted to uh, during the crisis and and has come to realize is in many ways more effective even uh, even when the uh, startup isn't that far away from you physically. <laughs> so that's very interesting to hear. Mark, uh, I'd like to dive a bit deeper in and into uh, what it's like to invest in life sciences specifically, uh, because I'm super interested in learning um, more about the, the part of our industry, which I think is probably the most important sector for, for venture capital. So the sector is at the same time notorious for, for having unique complexities when it comes to product development and, and the commercialization of the products. So what are your views on, on the model behind life sciences investing and how do you contrast it to the more mainstream vertical? Well, first of all, um, we are uh, very glad to have a European investment fund as our uh, major LP. And uh, EIF is running a, a yearly uh, event, uh, at least they did it last year, um, where they are inviting all their fund managers and talk about uh, topics arising and how the European ecosystem evolves and even how the subsectors are, are developing next to each other. So uh, for me, and starting with that, potentially, I have uh, a highest respect for VCs being in, uh, active in either impact or clean tech, which I think is, is something uh, you really have to have a big focus on uh, uh, moving forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm continuously discussing uh, with these fund managers and try to get them into one, one or the other uh, impact deal that we are doing. But um, people consider life sciences to being uh, impact all the time, which I don't think it's true. <laughs> uh, but I, I, can, I can discuss that afterwards. Um, so as, as I said, I have a highest respect for impact and clean tech. Um, what life sciences... Uh, about life science, I think you have a lot of uh, tech funds in Europe, and uh, if you review the latest figures that uh, EIF was publishing last year, a bit uh, um, as a surprising uh, data came up that uh, returns of life sciences funds are not necessarily uh, below the ones of the tech funds. And um, why is that? Uh, I think. When, when we are investing, uh, the, the assumption is that the life cycle uh, of a pot particular portfolio company in our book is quite long. 
uh, we um, we tend to uh, be very exit driven and what we say is within five years um, this marriage on time should be over again and the company has to uh, preferably be sold to a larger strategic or IPO which is not our preferable route or preferred route um, and I think they the difficult to understand part of life sciences investing is that if you are investing in several sub segments in life sciences uh, then the exits and and uh, dynamics are very different for example if you are having a therapeutics deal and you are showing a great phase 2a or even phase 2b data and it's an interest, interesting indication a new modality then the likelihood that you are taken out uh, by that time by a big pharma company is rather high and you are generating amazing returns, double-digit double digit returns, multiples on that particular deal. Whereas in medtech, in diagnostics uh, and in digital health, it is very different. I think in medtech and diagnostics, um, the strategics tend to wait until you have generated first sales. So that means far after Uh, you have your regulatory approvals in major markets, recurring sales, uh, you have to run post-marketing studies, and then you are sold in a critical moment between, uh, okay, you have generated enough value, but right now we only pay you a multiple on what you have generated in sales or even on income, which I think is not a good uh, game to be in as a VC, because that is more the game of a private equity player rather than a VC one. Um, and then digital health, again, is, is very different because uh, there the business models are so new and there are so many subsectors. There it is more tending towards the, the therapeutics business model in VC where you are sold uh, based on fantasy rather than uh, having hardcore facts that you are already having a product in the market and recurring revenues or number of patients uh, that are served on a tool and you have a three-year follow-up for these patients. So that is why I think they, the life cycle of these of these companies in our books is so different and the business models are so different that it's a bit hard to grasp um, how these different companies develop. And from the outside, they, the, the business model of these companies seem very complex, but I can tell you, um, me without having a natural sciences background, and I, I hopefully can say that, that it's not, it's not, complexity level is not higher than in, in any other industry. And I would very much like to learn how, how tech VCs are, are structuring and segmenting uh, between the, uh, the sectors they are in. But, you know, it's, uh, I think it's not that complex when you're, you're an insider rather than you're taking a, an outsider view on it. Um, you, you've actually um, referred this here and there through our conversation, but I, I, I'd love to deep dive into it, which is you, in fact, don't necessarily have a, a life science or natural science or, or R&D background, right? Um, and um, my, my question is, is really to that point in understanding uh, how and, and how should investors with a different background Uh, behave and and what are the success factors for them to be uh, successful in this in this uh, sector life sciences and also with that in mind um, maybe merging two two questions into one how do you go about building a relationship with founders because um, they very they might very well be uh, quite scientific uh, driven founders right 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 yeah you know um I'm doing that that business for 21 years, and at a certain point in time, I, I said, well, I have to assume um, that the, the technologies and the products these companies are developing 
from a scientific technical standpoint makes sense just because of the fact that so many clever people with background in the field have taken a look and have uh, have worked on that project then it should make sense scientifically medically you can find uh, points here and there and if you have uh, if you're sifting through so many deals a year even a uh, an mba only could bring up a couple of questions where you say well uh, okay, uh, let, uh, think about that one. But I think also in the boardroom, you have so many good R&D people coming out of pharma industry and have been published and, um, uh, about it, you know. So that's fine. I think the different perspective that I'm bringing in, uh, rather than being very financially driven, is how to create an equity story. Um, not scientifically driven, but something that is easily digestible by an acquirer. And there, I think uh, that is a... It's, probably more art than science because you have to predict a bit uh, what happens in the market. But, you know, uh, having somebody on the table that is not necessarily taking that deep scientific look, but uh, probably asking some question, but more focus on corporate development and exit, that sometimes is a refreshing element in a boardroom. And that is also admired by the entrepreneurs um, that, uh, that we are, I'm working with, that I'm taking a bit of a hopefully different and refreshing look into the destiny of the company. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy things like saying it's a marriage uh, on time, you know, and within five years, uh, hopefully that deal is gone in our books and provides a tremendous return to our investors slash us as managers. And then we can still have a, a cold drink together with the management. But, you know, it's a marriage on time. Uh, and, and that is, I think, if you're being very upfront with that one and very focused on, what, what the name of the game is, which is we are generating re, uh, return for our investors, I think that is some sometimes simplifying dealings even with entrepreneurs. Yeah, and uh, I guess, Mark, uh, you make sure to really put this point up front uh, before you start any negotiations. Um, and I, I really I admire you for doing that because I, I think many VCs uh, don't, uh, don't put enough focus on this point uh, to, to founders and, and that can create a lot of uh, uh, um, infighting between the investors and the founder uh, uh, later on. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's as, as, as you marry, if you marry somebody, I think if you are very upfront on what you expect and can't expect, uh, I think that, that simplifies what, what you're doing afterward. Very much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, yeah. Mark, you were just, you were just uh, referring to uh, VVC3, so the third third fund of, of Vesalius, and I would like to, to talk a, a little bit about that. Um, you obviously have some titles under your belt in terms of fundraising, uh, and uh, I would love to know uh, a bit more about the fundraising process for, for VVC3, um, especially considering that there was there was somewhat of a track of a track record, and that VVC3, I believe. Uh, fell into a part of a bigger story, um, and in that context, I would love uh, to know what are what was, in your opinion, some of the main success factors, and if you care to share, uh, what mistakes have you made that you definitely would? Yeah, so I think we are we are uh, very very happy happy and very glad that uh, we having European Investment Fund as the largest backer, a German pension fund, second largest backer, and a a plethora of uh, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, high net worth individuals uh, uh, backing us. I think um, uh, when it comes to uh, lessons learned and what I would do different, I think we we were still very much driven by the investment 
topic, you know, uh, really serving patients and addressing unmet medical and market needs, which we thought is a discriminating factor. And it's important that our investors also understand uh, what we are doing and why we are doing it. However, uh, we learned that there is a certain class of investors <laughs> that couldn't care less of, of what you are investing in. It's just about return. And uh, I think you have to decide as a fund manager what kinds of LPs you really want to have in, in your fund and whether they are buying into your investment topic or whether they uh, just want to make money. If it's the latter, then probably an, um, another asset class would be better for them uh, rather than working with a life sciences VC. On the other hand, if, if you are having the opportunity to sit together with, with a successful entrepreneur in his or her 60s uh, or so, and then you're explaining the story with a couple of war stories around it, then it, then it makes a lot of sense and it's really fun to discuss with these entrepreneurs which have been successful in other areas like automotive industry and tell them why you are doing the things you are doing. And then I think the hit ratio uh, sitting together with these uh, investors and the time spent is, is uh, it's much wiser spend of time uh, for me at least uh, uh, to bring that in. I think it's the first time we also got money from the MENA countries, um, so uh, Saudi Arabia and, and surrounding countries, which was also very interesting uh, to see how professional the, the asset managers in that part of the world are already. And um, yeah, so I think we, we were traveling a lot. I think I was uh, traveling five or six times uh, within a year to that region. And it was always very beneficial to learn uh, for me. It's, uh, it's very interesting to hear, Mark. Um, I'd like to also know, because you, you've said this before as well, that uh, that Fund 1 and Fund 2 were, were more focused on early stage, while Fund 3 is, has shifted its focus to, to the late stage pipeline. Uh, and then at the same time, you're seeing that and a lot of other VCs are, are, are mainly focused at, uh, at the therapeutic se segment, while while you guys are are taking a broader view and tackle anything from therapeutics to medical devices, diagnostics, and much more. Um, thinking about these things, what what do you see as uh, uh, the status for Vesalius Biocapital Three? When when we were setting up the third fund, I think this was also one of the major questions whether we should stick to. Uh, all the four uh, subsectors, with digital health being a, a newcomer. I think in the second fund, uh, this was a kind of an unknown insect to us. Um, and we uh, we decided to go for all of them because on one hand, we believe in a, in a balanced portfolio. Um, and also that is something we sold to our investors previously that we are not only looking into the therapeutics deals, where, as I said before, you are more or less getting rid of it before it comes to the market, but also support uh, companies in med tech and diagnostics and digital health, which could have a large impact on, on patient care um, with, with that third fund. And, and I think it was a conscious decision to go for all uh, four subsectors. And um, on the other hand, uh, syndication for, for the deals is, uh, is very difficult. Uh, I think nobody loves these days diagnostics deals. Um, a bit more love is going towards medtech deals. But when I started my career, I think everybody was talking about medtech rather than doing therapeutics. And that pendulum swung, uh, is, is at the other end right now. I think you hardly have uh, any medtech-focused funds anymore in Europe. And same is more or less true for, for the US. 
and everybody's talking about digital health. Um, I was recently sitting next to a lady uh, of a very large tech fund, and she told me that she loves to do uh, digital health. But when we were going in detail, she, she was telling, I'm only investing in B2C tools, not going for regulatory approval. But I said, well, we are just at the other side of the fence. We would only go for tools with CE marking and FDA approval. So digital health is, is, is really considered a couple of things under this one umbrella. In, in terms of our status, uh, we have executed seven investments. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll likely be around 10 or 11. And then we are almost through that third fund and, um, and then uh, um, back the companies for uh, and going to the, let's say, to the, to the finish line within the next couple of years. And uh, seeing the companies evolving that we have done uh, two and a half years ago is, is great, like Sword Health, uh, which is mainly backed by Kosla Ventures and Founders Fund, which has put very large tickets into it already. So, Mark, uh, to, to finish up, uh, we would like to do a quick fire round. The quick fire round is when we ask you quick answer questions, so 30 to 60 seconds for each one. Uh, is this okay for you? Yep, happy. So, uh, in your opinion, what should VCs and founders understand about investing and fundraising across Europe rather than in a single country? Well, I think most of the entrepreneurs these days uh, accept that uh, we're having a geographical agenda. And uh, they are sometimes faced with a question, would you move from France to Germany or from Israel to Germany or somewhere else in Belgium? And I think most of the people are prepared. And that is uh, having an open mind in a discussion with regards to which country to really invest in is, is absolutely necessary these days. And uh, what would you uh, personally like to change about the VC landscape in Europe? Oh, difficult question. No, I'm, I'm a newcomer, so it, it would be a bit uh, uh, annoying uh, that I tell the others uh, what, what to do better. Uh, I think uh, what you have seen in the past quarters is that a number of large funds have been raised in European Life Sciences, uh, VC, and that is great for the sector. So I think that was a bit of a shortcoming that there was uh, not enough money in the ecosystem, which has changed right now. So at the moment, I'm very, very positive for the whole sector. Um, maybe the, the, the most uh, provocative question, what, what can we expect in the future from Vazelis and, and uh, maybe even more interestingly from yourself, from Mark Lerman? Well, I think you're, we are on a good track here with Vesalius. Uh, we are seeing a number of good deals. I think we also were able to manage uh, the crisis quite well. And um, you can expect us to have uh, great deals signed up until the end of the year. And that I hopefully am, I'm able to support uh, the management teams of the companies in a way that simplifies their work and brings them to uh, developing great products and realizing great exits. Great, Mark. Uh, it has been real, real, real nice to chat with you. And I, I must say, I personally had a great time and I've, I've learned a bunch. So I'm, I'm very glad for that. And uh, I, I really want to thank you for sharing your journey and insights with us. And I, I just have to say, it, it has been a great pleasure to have you on uh, the European VC. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for uh, for that interview. Uh, much appreciated. And thank you for inviting me as, as the first guest. And uh, I wish you all the best, uh, both for that platform as well as for your personal uh, destiny in European VC. Thank you, Mark. As you can tell, we had a great time talking with Mark Lorman, managing partner of Azelius Biocapital Fund 3. If you would like to see more from Mark, you can find him on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to place for insights into the European VC industry. If you would like to hear more from us, visit theeuropeanvc.com. If you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us at LinkedIn or whichever medium fits you best. We are always here for you. 